Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we're bringing the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We're also answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. Soccer is, you know, it's been in my blood, in my veins since I was a kid. I think I took that experience and brought it into food, you know, the work ethic, the commitment, listening to a coach, doing it as a team. It's very similar to being in the kitchen in many ways. It was a numbers game. I wanted to be the best I could be. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting our April 30, 2023 issue. Our cover story features a comprehensive look at wine and wellness, including inspiration for healthy living from a number of prominent wine and hospitality industry folks. Among them, we've got Marcus Samuelson and Bobby Stuckey joining us today. And later, we'll also be joined by Wine Spectator's Senior Editor for News, Mitch Frank. He's going to chat with us about the scientific evidence supporting the benefits of wine consumption as part of a balanced and healthy lifestyle. Our April issue is also the regular spot for our annual Piedmont Tasting Report, covering the latest releases of Barolo and Barbaresco. And we'll also have a special guest appearance from Gaia Gaia. And now joining me as always is our podcast director, Rob Taylor. Hello, James. Welcome back. How was your trip to Napa? It was great. I was there for a couple of weeks, stopped in at a couple of wineries, probably two that you've heard of, Robert Mondavi and David Ramey. I have heard of them because we've published your winery intel columns on the website already, so our listeners can read much more on both of those visits there. Mondavi was a lot of fun. I got a little sneak peek behind the curtain at the 2021 and 2022 barrel samples of Cabernet Sauvignon coming from there. There's a big renovation now underway in both the winery facility and their hospitality. It's going to take a couple of years to complete the whole thing. But I have noticed that when wineries tend to reinvest in their technology, their vinification, all that sort of stuff, there's an uptick in quality. It's going to take a few years before the consumers see that end result. But again, I think the, the trend line that we've seen from Mondavi in recent years, including that top 10 wine last year, is uh, continuing there. So that was interesting. And then David Ramey, you know, he's sort of the professor of Chardonnay in California, and uh, he's a first-generation family-owned winery. Well, he's not selling. He's got his kids helping out there now. You know, there's a lot of big-name corporate buyouts sometimes in Napa that give Napa their reputation for not really carrying through on family-owned wineries. But every time I go out there, I see another example like Ramey or Fabia or some of the others where second or third generation is now stepping in and they're not selling. They're going to continue what they're doing there. Ramey Wine Cellars is uh, really humming along nicely. I know you love those family wineries. And I'm not saying these two things are related, but about the time you came back from Napa, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. That's had a lot of impact on the wine industry as well. Yeah, it's pretty serious, you know, not just that it's a banking collapse, but that it's so specific to the wine industry. Silicon Valley Bank had over 400 winery clients there. They really specialized in helping small family wineries and startups and others, you know, make their way. And uh, we're going to talk about that later with Mitch Frank because that's a, it's a big news story. Absolutely. Now, before we get into the heart of the episode, I need to remind our listeners about the offline of all offlines. It's the ultimate wind down. Wine Spectator's Grand Tour Super Tasting is back. It's 200 wines rated 90 points or higher. It kicks off in Hollywood, Florida, April 15th. Then it's on to Chicago, April 22nd. And it wraps up in Las Vegas, April 29th. Tickets are on sale now at Grand Tour at winespectator.com. Now, a Grand Tour ticket costs about the same as your typical bottle of Napa Cabernet these days. So 
when you get into that tasting, you've got 200 wines at your disposal, including a number of prominent Napa Cabernets like Camus, Diamond Creek, Etude, Stag's Leap, name a few. So it's a pretty good buy uh, for a heck of a tasting, a couple of hours that you can walk around and try all those wines. I highly recommend it. Not to mention the free souvenir Riedel wine glass. Mm-hmm. That too. Now these... Big tastings are pretty cool, but they're also pretty intimidating. And thankfully, we've got Dr. Venny coming up later. She's going to give us a guide to wine tasting etiquette. Yeah, definitely be a healthy primer for anyone who's attending a tasting like this for the first time. It's, it's a lot to take in. As for our episode, are we ready to get started? Let's get into it. Our April cover story is about wine and wellness. Yes, you can drink wine and have a healthy, balanced lifestyle. And one of our lead reporters on this was senior editor Kristen Beeler. She's joining us now. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, James. Hey, Rob. Hey. Kristen, I've been lucky enough to enjoy your cooking. I consider you an excellent chef, and you've always got that, that great farm-to-table style uh, when you put out a spread. Of course, there's always wine there, and you're super active, too. Your, your whole family is. Is all of that like a conscious decision for you in, in how you live your lifestyle? Oh, well, first of all, thanks, James. That's so nice. I would say yes. You know, wine and food overconsumption is a real occupational hazard for all of us in this business. So I try to eat healthy, and luckily I live in New York, so I walk absolutely everywhere, which keeps me fit. I'm not anywhere near as fit as the people we profile, but um, I definitely am always moving. What about you, James? Well, about it was about 10 years ago, actually. I'd gotten pretty overweight, and it was obvious that I was going to be tasting wine probably for the rest of my life, and I just I realized that I could not do this job if I didn't attack the lifestyle part of it and really make that as much of what I do as my wine tasting. And so I just made a commitment to myself and I did it in a, in a positive way. Instead of beating myself up about something, I said, look, if you want to do this and enjoy life, then you've got to make this other commitment on the, on the health side of things. And I made it in retrospect, it was probably one of the best decisions I ever made because here I am now and I'm, I'm looking forward to being in my sixties and my seventies and my eighties drinking wine and, and eating delicious food. And I feel like I've set myself up for that in a, in a good way. You've also run some marathons. I did a couple marathons. Um, and yeah, so it was just all of that kind of stuff and just finding something to do that was fun and challenging at the same time. And then the reward at the end of a marathon is a bottle of champagne. It doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> well, let's get to this cover story, Kristen. One of the subjects of the April issue is chef Marcus Samuelson. Tell us about him. Yeah, so Marcus Samuelson, he came to the U.S. at 22. He grew up in Sweden, and he pretty quickly made a name for himself in New York as a really talented chef, at first at Aquavit, which is the Swedish restaurant in Midtown in New York. And then he built his own restaurant empire. He has his flagship restaurant, Red Rooster in Harlem, and he has restaurants now all over the world. Um, he just opened a new one in New York called Hav and Mar, where he's only employing women in leadership positions, which is pretty interesting. He's also a judge on a new number of food shows like Chopped and Top Chef and a cookbook author. So I wanted to talk to him about how he finds time to fit balance and fitness into his daily life in spite of everything he's juggling. And he talked a lot about how it's important not just for his health, but also for his creativity as a chef. Welcome, Marcus. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here. So the life of a chef and restaurateur is not one that most of us associate with optimal healthy living. There's very real occupational hazards in your line of work between late nights, the stress. You're incredibly disciplined. How have you managed to create such a life of balance and, and health, given everything else you juggle? Well, I don't think anyone would look at it from balance, uh, <laughs> uh, especially if you ask my wife. <laughs> but I think balance and how you want to be a chef is something you have to work on really, really hard. 
because yes, we are essentially working when the majority of the population are off, right? So to fit in family and to fit in a healthier lifestyle, it is challenging. But I also think that if I wouldn't have this decision, I wouldn't still be a chef. I, I cooked since I was 17 years old professionally, right? It's almost like an athlete or um, something like that. It tears on your body tremendously. So I look at my workout routine or my space of exercising or walking a lot as part of longevity. You know, so it's an investment just like a restaurant can be an investment, just like wine can be an investment. And I need it in order to process and also in order to create. You know, end of the day, I think a chef, we're part craft, part artist, but then we also have to be able to do so many other roles like manage people, market our product, all of these different things. And if, if I don't have my health with me, I can't do any of that. Mm. So how do you carve the time out for that every day? I do see you running in Central Park mm-hmm. quite often. Mm-hmm. I live nearby you in Harlem. Yeah. And you're moving pretty fast, certainly a lot faster than I am. <laughs> but um, how, do you, how do you carve the time out in your day-to-day life with everything else that you have? Well, it's blocks that are important. You know, everything important for me, you have to carve out. I mean, I would always say I'm, I'm the slowest Ethiopian runner you know, <laughs> but that's still pretty fast. <laughs> uh, trust me, if you, if you, um, you want to get humbled in life, go and run in Ethiopia. <laughs> the, the eight-year-olds are just going to pass you. <laughs> but um, running has helped me. Obviously, I work out at the same time, but it also gives me that space of thinking about Sometimes food, sometimes what not food, sometimes family. You just really like that one hour of processing. You know, it's it's just a calming effect on me that I need and I really search for. And I get moody if I don't get some type of workout in at least four days a week. Um, and uh, it doesn't have to be really hard. It's just about, I think it's also that time alone. You know, my routine is pretty, I wake up early, I make breakfast for my family, and uh, then I take my son to school. And um, then I go to a nearby gym and try not to take any calls during that time. And then once that's done with, my work day really, truly, truly begins. And I know that you are a lifelong soccer player. And you even dreamed of maybe going professional when you were a kid playing soccer growing up in Sweden. And soccer is still a part of your life. Talk about how you incorporate that both as a player and then also mm. as, as the head culinary coach for New yeah. York's major league team. Well, soccer is, you know, it's been in my blood, in my veins since I was a kid. Not always organizing team, but like always like on the street or somewhere. It was just part of how we communicated. We played soccer, walking to school, you know, it's like it was just something that was part of what we did. Yeah, and I did play um, on a pretty high level, did not make it to pros. But it was a good lesson for me because I think I took that experience and brought it into food, you know, mm. the work ethic, the commitment, listening to a coach, doing it as a team. It's very similar to being in the kitchen in many ways, especially as a young, young person. You're like, you're part of this bigger experience. You got to work together with others. There's a lot of similarities there for me. Samuelson's a pretty remarkable guy, and he's also a wine lover too, right, Kristen? Absolutely. He he loves wine. He enjoys a glass of wine at the end of each night with his wife. It's sort of one of his rituals that he cherishes to kind of unwind and find balance. And he has a pretty eclectic taste in wine too. He loves discovering new regions, new wines, and that's reflected both in his personal cellar and on the wine list at his restaurants. I very often collect wine with 
places I cooked or friends of mine that I'm intrigued about see what they're doing, right? I'm always interested in, in journeys like that. So, for example, if I've been to South Africa, I always want to think about Pinotage, for example, mm-hmm. something that, of course, you can buy it here, but there's a different journey if you know the winemaker, if you know the journey, for example, right? And really, you know, a, a restaurant is also a center of, especially a restaurant like Hav that we know will get a lot of features and through different media. We're also an opener for a lot of new brands. And so it's important for us to highlight BIPOC winemakers, right? So yes, we know about the McBride sisters and we know about Andrew Mack, but under that comes other wonderful winemakers as well. You know, and then the history of the Brown, for example. You know, I love something like Robledo, for example, like whatever they started as wine pickers that now owns a great winery, right? Like think stories that are really American tour stories are part of the American fabric. So for me, the wine I drink at home reflects very often the wine we have in the restaurant, and I know the why. It's really interesting to talk to Marcus because he has so many ideas and such a unique perspective on restaurants and restaurant culture and how we can change that to make it more humane for people who work in it. Another person I spoke to for this feature who has a lot of opinions on that is Bobby Stuckey. And James, I know you connected with Bobby as well. Yeah, Bobby's always impressive. Uh, you know, you talk to Marcus Samuelson, and that's sort of the wine and food combination, the chef side of things. Bobby is on the service side of things in restaurants. I was a sommelier for a year. I know how hard that job is. He's been doing it for decades. He's really one of the, the elder statesmen, and I say that out of all due respect because he doesn't look a day over 35. He's super active. Um, he joined us via Zoom from one of his restaurants in Boulder, Colorado, to talk about this same subject. Bobby Stuckey started as a busboy, and even though now he's an owner at his own Frasca Food & Wine, a Best of Award of Excellence winner since 2011 located in Boulder, Colorado, he will still proudly bus a table if needed. He also owns Pizzeria Locale and Tavernetta and Sunday Vinyl, also in Denver, as well as the Italian wine brand Scarpetta. Bobby Stuckey, welcome to Straight Talk. How are you? James and Wine Spectator, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on with you. Restaurant work is a grind, my friend, and you probably know that better than anyone. I know it too. I lasted one year as a sommelier, luckily, before I got on the gig here at Wine Spectator. But you've been in the industry for 40 years. Congrats on that. First off, obviously, you love what you do, but you've also had to make some commitments to yourself other than just going to work every day. And our story on you for our wine and wellness issue, in your early years, that commitment to yourself was no late night after shift drinking. So what brought you to that realization as a young sommelier in an industry where, you know, the late night wind down is a really common thing? Well, I mean, it's a great question. And and look, I don't want to sound like, you know, everyone has to stop having fun. I have a great time. But in the mid 90s, I was working as the wine director at the Little Mill in Aspen. And, you know, part of the culture is you go out after work. It doesn't matter if you're in Aspen, New York, Paris, wherever. And I just wanted to, I it was a numbers game. I wanted to be the best I could be. And if you kind of look at school, 90 to 100% is an A. And I wanted to be an A. And if I looked at it mathematically, if I had a couple, one or two days a week where I wasn't spot on and you work a five-day work week, it's impossible to to be 90% of your best that week. And so I made a decision. uh, I think it was like 1999. I said, okay, I'm not going to go out after work. And then of course, on my night off, I'll go out and have dinner and things like that. But just cutting that out. And it seems dramatic for a young person. Look, I have many team members that are 
young and I tell them that and they look at me like I have three heads coming out of my neck. But in all honesty, it's amazing how much easier this industry is once you decide to get normal sleep patterns, get some exercise done in the morning, all these things. This industry that we all say is so hard automatically becomes 20 to 30 percent more sustainable. So in retrospect, that decision was pretty critical for you, it sounds like. How else have you managed that work-life balance over the years so that you could stay on top of your game in the hospitality industry? Well, I think that's a big part of it. I think um, I'm very lucky. I have a life partner, my wife, Danette, who you've met before. She's very supportive of this industry. And that's what's hard about this industry is, you know, there's a lot of times it's tough. It can be tough on relationships. It can be tough on on families and friends and all those things. And I think one of the things that's really helped me is having a life partner that's really encouraging of this industry. I also think admitting early on in my 20s that I love this industry, how am I going to make it work? And realizing not to get caught up with all the things that people say are hard, just try to decompartmentalize it, meaning of course, you got to work nights, you got to work holidays, but other things can be really good benefits. And don't focus on the negative, focus on the positive. It's Bobby's positivity that always winds up lingering most when, when he leaves the room. He's just an inspirational character, I find, and, and I'm really happy that he joined us here. If you're interested in reading more about Bobby Stuckey and Marcus Samuelson and the rest of our wine and wellness profile subjects, don't forget to check out the April issue of Wine Spectator. In the meantime, thanks for joining us here on Straight Talk. Christian, we're going to see you back here next episode, right? That's right. I'll be back in the next episode in conversation with Gerard Bertrand, one of France's most interesting winemakers based in the Languedoc region. Really looking forward to that one. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, James. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Kristen. I don't know about you, James, but I feel healthier having just listened to those guys talk. You you mentioned how Stucky leaves that positivity in the room even after he leaves. I feel like he left it here on the podcast with us. You know, I, I think we got some some great examples of what I would call highly effective people who are successfully enjoying wine in moderation as part of a healthy lifestyle. And to boot, you know, we've been reporting on wine's potential health benefits for decades, but don't take my word for it. Wine Spectator Senior Editor for News Mitch Frank is here. He's going to get us caught up on all the latest with wine and health. Welcome back, Mitch. Hey, guys. I don't know about you. That just made me feel old and slow. Uh, I run three miles <laughs> a few times a week, and Bobby Stuckey's running marathons in the Rockies. Uh, seriously, though, it was great hearing those guys and hearing what keeps them healthy and, and fit. So, Mitch, I know you've got a lot to tell us. Uh, you know, for years, we've been told a glass of wine or two uh, a night is is safe, if not actually good for you. But lately, there's been a lot more talk in the mainstream media about how much, if any, alcohol is, quote unquote, safe. How much of this is based on new science and how much of this is just a narrative being shaped by a modern day temperance movement, which is, you know, something that America's had to grapple with culturally all along? It's the American way, James. Uh, no, seriously, with health, there are never obvious answers. Part of this is the cycle of health trends. You remember in the 1980s, alcohol was seen as unhealthy and there was no difference between wine, beer and spirits in people's mm -hmm. eyes. And then in the 1990s, after Morley Safer went on 60 Minutes with the French Paradox, research showed that people who drank wine in moderation had better heart health. Today, everyone's talking dry January and sober October all of a sudden. 
So what does this mean? Well, first of all, medical research into people's drinking habits has limitations. These are observational studies, which means that researchers track people's health and ask them about their eating, their drinking, their exercise, whether they smoke, and their other habits. And so when they find that people who drink a glass of wine a day are more or less healthy, that's correlation, not causation. Mm -hmm. Now, the people who are now saying that no amount of alcohol of any kind is safe are focusing on a few points. First, alcohol can raise your risk of some forms of cancer. Second, while studies continue to show that drinking one or two glasses of wine a day with meals can lower your risk of heart disease or stroke, diabetes, and even dementia, many people don't drink in moderation. I think people like Marcus and Bobby show the key to good health. It's balance. Don't go sober for a month and then binge drink to celebrate. Drink a glass or two of wine with your dinner. Eat healthy. Exercise. And talk to your doctor about what's right for you. And, you know, here's one more thought that always strikes me. Humans are social creatures. Having a drink with friends and getting to know people has been a part of humanity for centuries. That's something to celebrate and to raise a glass to, I think. Truth. Thanks, Mitch. That's great advice. If we have time to switch gears, I would love to hear if you have any updates on the Silicon Valley Bank situation. Well, things are moving very quickly there. Uh, as we record, the federal government has guaranteed uh, the bank's account holders deposits and is trying to sell the bank's assets to other banks. The good news is that the hundreds of winemakers, they had more than 400 wineries as clients. Uh, those winemakers who did business with SVB should not lose their money. The bad news is that for 29 years, SVB offered specialized services to help small wineries. Uh, everything from giving them market research, coming up with lines of credit that worked for them, helping them basically make their dreams into reality. And if the wine division doesn't find a new home with another bank, uh, that would be a big loss for American wineries. Grim stuff. Well, it's, it's good news that they're being made whole in terms of the, the financial aspect of it. But that expertise and that, that specialization that the bank brought to Napa Valley, that's going to be felt for sure in, until that void is filled in again. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Mitch, thanks for joining us and getting us caught up on the, all the wine and health and the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Hey, always glad to be here, guys. Stay healthy. Thanks, Mitch. The April issue of Wine Spectator also includes our annual Piedmont Tasting Report, covering the latest vintages of Barolo, Barbaresco, and more. Wine Spectator senior editor Bruce Sanderson says that the current release Barolos from the 2018 vintage are outstanding, and he's using words like fresh, elegant, and vibrant to describe the vintage's style overall, which also carries through to the 2019 Barbarescos. That's the current release vintage for those wines, which are aged less and thus released sooner than their Barolo cousins. Interestingly, both 2018 and 2019 are cooler throwback vintages in Piedmont, but like most European wine regions, weather extremes are becoming par for the course. Bruce talked to fifth-generation winemaker Gaia Gaia about how they're managing the effects of extreme weather to develop more resilient vineyards that can carry well into the future. And she also gave us a preview of the 2020 vintage. Here are some excerpts from that interview. After some warm vintages like 2015, 2017, 2020, and 2022, the 2018 and 2019 seasons were cooler, perhaps more like vintages in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. 
it seems like you have to be prepared for all kinds of weather now. Are there specific approaches you take in the vineyard? In part, we have to have trust and belief in our vineyards, in the capacity of vines of uh, reacting. They have been surprising us in the fact that uh, they have reacted very well to extremes of the weather. Resilience becomes the word that is uh, important. In every aspect of viticulture, we focus today much more on resilience respect to the past. So keeping our soils alive, trying to cultivate biodiversity is a way to create an environment for our vines that is healthy. And uh, a soil that is alive is a soil that is flexible. We are very kind with the grapes. So we are very delicate with the extractions. It doesn't mean that we do short macerations, but simply we do it in, in a kinder way. So we can have macerations that can go from two weeks to two months. And looking ahead, what can Borolo and Barbaresco lovers expect from the 2020 harvest? In few words, uh, I think that the characteristic of 2020 is the fruitiness. They have a nice fruit expression. They are supple in tannins. They are uh, medium body wines. Are wines where the finesse of Nebbiolo comes out uh, very strongly. Gaia, thank you for your time today and for your insights on the uh, 2018, 2019, and 2020 vintages. Thank you, Bruce. Piedmont is a complicated region, similar in many ways to Burgundy and relying on a single red varietal, Nebbiolo in this case, plus lots of producers and many vineyards in a hilly region. Once you've had a great Nebbiolo, though, you'll know why it has such a fervent following. Let Bruce Sanderson's report be your guide for getting into these special wines. And now, kicking it over to Rob Taylor, he's got some reader mail to go through with Dr. Vinny. I'm on my way, Dr. V. Paging Dr. Vinny. Paging Dr. Vinny. Code Rouge in the podcast studio. Hey, Dr. Vinny. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. We're introducing a new format today. New to the podcast anyway. It's not new to you. It's pretty self-explanatory. So let's get right into our Dr. Vinny mailbag. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of what I do for a living. So <laughs> uh, This one comes to us from Aura in Roseville, California. She writes, Dear Dr. Vinny, it's frowned upon to wear perfume to a wine tasting, right? Sometimes when I go to a tasting room, I'm bombarded by the way other people smell. What should you do if someone at a tasting is wearing a strong fragrance? Oh, I, I love this question because I think it's one of these kind of sticky etiquette things that hopefully I can help with. But yeah, it's absolutely considered inappropriate in the wine industry to not just wear perfume or cologne, but really any hairspray or aftershave lotion or really anything with a strong or lingering odor at a wine tasting. And that's because there's a strong relationship between what we smell and what we taste. Unfortunately, not everyone knows that. So when you run into that in a public situation, there's really not much you can do as far as telling someone that they smell or they're distracting you. I really think the best thing is to do is just move away. You know, if you're sitting, ask if you can move to a different area, step outside, get some fresh air, you know, ask for a window to be opened. Um, but I wouldn't embarrass anyone for that. I would just take that as a learning lesson for when you're attending a tasting 
to just be polite to other people and, and to yourself. You might have a signature scent that you've become so immune to, but you know, if you remove that, that might really enhance your wine tasting experience. So when it comes to getting ready for that big wine tasting, and, and we do have a big wine tasting coming up, our grand tour is just around the corner on April 15th in Hollywood, Florida, and then we'll be heading to Chicago April 22nd and finishing up in Las Vegas April 29th. That's 200 wines, all rated 90 plus points. I was wondering, along with fragrance, maybe there are some attire suggestions more specifically. <laughs> Why, yes, I recommend the all black experience. <laughs> yeah. um, mostly, uh, I mean, the thinking here is that dark colors are better to hide spills. Certainly avoid any dangling sleeves so you don't dip your sleeve into a wine glass or cause some spills. And also, if you're going to be carrying anything, and hopefully you'll be carrying a wine glass and maybe a a notebook or your phone pockets will help so that you're not, you have a hand free for, you know, holding your plate of food and your glass and that sort of thing, shaking hands with winemakers, taking notes, that sort of thing. So definitely be prepared in that sense. Now, one of the interesting and maybe surprising things to people who may not have ever attended a tasting like this before is that you're going to see people dressed in their fanciest clothes Spitting wine all over the place. <laughs> what is the spitting protocol? What is the spitting etiquette? When should we spit? Listen, my very first professional wine tasting, I didn't spit. And I was sober enough to knock over an entire um, table full of wine glasses. So <laughs> listen, don't be that person. <laughs> and if you think about it, if you spit and you stay hydrated and you eat food, you'll just get a chance to you know really take advantage of the ticket that you paid for and enjoy more wines. So not everyone's comfortable spitting in public. I truly think it's something you might even want to try and practice at home the next time you're brushing your teeth, which is, of course, is going to be tonight before you go to bed. <laughs> Just see how much control you have over where that spit is going, how much force you have to put on this. I'm, I'm not joking. You have to put force on the sides of your cheek and use your tongue to guide. And when you become where you can spit exactly where you want to go, you'll feel more comfortable leaning over that spit bucket and spitting in there. It's no faux pas to spit wine in front of a winemaker he made. He he does it himself or she does it herself, I promise. Don't be shy. They're used to it. Yeah, spit, spit. Wine lovers spit. Well, I think that our listeners should feel very confident attending our grand tour or whatever their next tasting experience might be. But if they're not, they can email their questions for you to straighttalk at winespectator.com. And for more of your free advice, they can check out your weekly Q&As at winespectator.com. And Dr. Vinny, I think that's it for today. Is it? We're done already? That's a wrap on Episode 7. So, Rob, why don't you take us out of here? The April issue of Wine Spectator includes not just our cover story on wine and wellness and Bruce's Piedmont tasting report, but we've also got Kristen's report on Israeli wines just in time for Purim. And a guide to wine country wellness activities in Napa, Sonoma, and Santa Barbara. That's your, your hiking, your forest bathing, your spas, your yoga. If you have questions for us or you just want to drop us a line, you can email us at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow Wine Spectator on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And next time we're going to be covering the May 31, 2023 issue of Wine Spectator, including that rare interview with Domaine de la Romanicanti's Aubert de Belaine and Bruce's annual Burgundy Report. We've got that Gerard Bertrand interview with Kristen and maybe even a celebrity rosé guest. And how about that bonus wine pick for everyone who's stayed tuned till the end? I try to make these Easter eggs worthwhile. My sneak peek wine pick 
Thanks for writing that for me, Rob. It's not too difficult to get through that. Is the Domaine de la Côte Pinot Noir, Santa Rita Hills 2021. This is the base level cuvee from this Pinot Noir producer. I wrote about them in my notes on tasting column near the end of last year. 92 points, 55 bucks, a little over 600 cases made, so you're going to have a chance of finding it. The winery's other bottlings start at 90 bucks and go up quickly, so this is the place to start if you want to try the wines and see if you dig the style. And that style is from winemaker Sashi Mormon, who really emphasizes the racy, savory, minerally side of Pinot. And there's a lot of hype building for the 21 Pinots out there, Rob. Let me tell you, both Southern and Northern California, my spidey sense is telling me the hype is legit. So Domaine de la Cote, Pinot Noir, Santa Rita Hills 2021, run, don't walk. I'm running. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Straight Talk. I'm James Molesworth reminding you once again to always share when you drink the good stuff. 